Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Mike, and thanks for joining us for this episode of Amateur All Tours. You can follow us on Twitter at All Tours Pod. Email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at the Amateur All Tours Podcast at gmail.com. And it would also mean a lot to everyone on the show if you could leave a rating, like, review on whatever platform of the show you listen to on. And guys, this this week I am very excited to introduce uh, Jay Skipwork back to the show. Man, how how you doing? I hope Hope everything is well with you, especially during these crazy times with COVID and, and everything just going on. Mike, thanks for having me back on first. Always glad to be back on the show and talk movies with you. You were nice enough to come on and do a session show for us uh, back in the spring with Filmstrip. And yes, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Everything is good here in the North Carolina area, at least for, for us. We've just been working from home and uh, slowly but surely easing back into what our new normal will be. But though for you know what I do and my crew, we'll be working from home for a few more weeks, they tell us. So, But uh, glad to have remained healthy and certainly want to send a shout out to all those who have uh, not and then also maybe have lost people throughout this we know it's a tough time but um, glad to be able to talk podcast maybe provide a little bit of a break from all of that kind of stuff uh, you know from everything else that's out there in the world uh, I know I've certainly enjoyed you know spending time with a lot of podcasts during this time as well yeah exactly and you know I I'm a healthcare worker uh, I won't get into too much too many specifics of like what department I work at or what area I work at but you know our hospital system has had a huge influx of of COVID patients and I, I live in Pennsylvania but I, I work over in Jersey so you know New York Jersey whole upper northeast has been getting hit really hard so last week like the last few weeks honestly have been have been pretty hard and you know, although i'm not on covid units um you know i work with people that like respiratory therapists that directly on those covid units hearing firsthand accounts what they're going through and uh people i went to nursing school with and and i and my coworkers are on like these icu floors and, and it's a lot you know you hear the the code blues the the uh to the icu to whatever unit and it's it's pretty depressing so i have to say like this doing a podcast with you but just like talking about movies i've been looking forward to this and it's a much needed escape from reality even if just for a little bit and it, it almost feels like a, we're living in a dream and it's pretty surreal. And with that, I'm going to segue into our film, which is Inception. So, Jay, you actually brought this up to me uh, not too long ago. Like, uh, like, oh, man, like, if you ever want to collaborate, I got some really cool things on Inception. I'm like, oh, that's, like, really interesting. I never really have thought to talk about such a monumental film. So I, I just want to – I want to ask you, Jay, like, why Inception? Like, what about Inception that makes you want to want to talk about it? Well, one, I think there's a lot to talk about, and sometimes I think it's it's to talk about how much talk is about this movie, but I have to tell the story of how I got introduced to this, because I don't know that I would have been aware of this, Mike, if it hadn't have been for Stuart from Now Playing Podcast. Back in the days when Inception was coming out, I was editing for them. This is before Filmstrip had really started. I think The Art of Slaying was just getting going as a podcast. And so I was just editing and Stuart, for those that don't know, and this is well-known knowledge now, has set the schedule for years for now playing, like putting stuff in order and all that kind of thing. And he, behind the scenes, had been telling everybody, we need to do this movie. You know, this is before they had done, uh, you know, the Batman uh, movies and, and all that kind of stuff. and hadn't really done Nolan. And 
he said, this movie is going to be huge. Leonardo DiCaprio's in it. I'm telling y'all we need to do it. He was working out in LA at the time. So I just remember going like, okay. And I had no idea what this was about at all. I knew who Nolan was because I had seen Memento, like a lot of people. And I think I'd seen Batman Begins too. So I was already kind of on the train with him. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm down for whatever this is. And I remember going to see this in theaters and just being mind blown because as an editor, they wanted you to watch the movie, especially if it was something new that you didn't know so that you could you know, rearrange the conversation. And I'll, just a quick story on that that was one of the craziest edits I've ever done for them. Hmm. Um, I got that uh, file at like midnight. I worked on it all night and half of the next day to get it out for weekend of release and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was, it was just a different thing. It was before they were, had gotten really locked into Tuesday and everything like that. And so um, I remember working really hard on it and it turned out to be one of my better edits. It was one of the ones that, that I, I, I had to do a good bit too, but it ended up the final version of it turned out really good. And anyway, it was an interesting conversation. It's just been a movie that I've lived with ever since then, because after that, I would like take friends to see it. I wanted people to watch it and talk about it. You know, I've talked about it with several of the, the film strip crew offline, but we've never put it together an episode on it, mostly because it was a, well, what else is there going to be to say that we haven't already said? And so it, it's been several years since I watched it. And sometime earlier this year, before COVID and all that kind of stuff, it popped up on my Netflix queue because at one time or another, I had saved it on a list. And then, you know, when things roll off your list on Netflix, when they come back on, they just reappear. And I thought, you know, I haven't watched Inception in a few years. I'm just going to throw that on. And so one Sunday morning, I, I turned it on and watched it. And I think it was like raining outside or something. And I just sat there and watched the whole thing. And I just got engrossed in it again. And I thought, man, this is, this is such a cool movie. And it's so fun. And having lived with it now for a decade, I've really come around to appreciating it for what it is. And I'm going to preface all of my thoughts with, you can complicate this story as much as you absolutely want to. And Christopher Nolan built a world that you can just, you put Star Wars level complication to if you want to, in terms of fandom, or you can just take it for what it is and realize it's the badassest uh, heist James Bond, non-James Bond movie made in the last 25 years. And that's kind of how I've come around on Inception. So I, when I wrote you about it, I said, if you ever want to do a show on Inception, let me know because, quote, I got thoughts. Yeah, and, and I'm very curious to hear because I also have thoughts too. And before I get into my, I guess, history with Inception, uh, let's talk about Chris Nolan first because I think he's such this like enigmatic figure that is it's it's something that we have to talk about and i i would say he's chris nolan is arguably one of the most recognizable auteurs in terms of style and and especially he is an auteur for the everyday moviegoer in in my opinion and we were kind of talking about this a little bit off off air and i I think that his films have something for literally everyone and that there's that surface level stuff that appeals to the common goers but then there's the deep subtext for the movie boss and you know it's i equate it to kind of like the matrix you have that whoa man like that's this is so edgy this is so cool and then you have like the deep philosophical meanings behind his writing i i think he is a good balance between Spielberg and Kubrick and I mean that both as a compliment and a criticism because I think he can he he's that in between of the blockbuster and the art house director but where the criticism comes in is that he has one foot in each side and I think that's it, it again it's both a detriment and a strength that he has being this well-rounded director that anyone can see so I want to ask you Jay these two questions what was your first 
intro to Chris Nolan and when did you realize that he was something special because we we might have different well I'm, I'm assuming we're gonna have different responses to this because I'm a little bit younger and you know my favorite movie was of his is not what I was introduced to so I'll let you answer then I'll and then I'll follow suit my introduction to him was Memento and it was a friend in college who said did you need to check out this movie I think you would dig it. It's your kind of thing. He knew I like noir thrillers. And he said, this one's, it's, it's awesome. It's told in reverse. And I was like, huh? You know, and just that premise alone was enough for me to go like, sure. And I rented it. And I'll be honest, I don't think I got it. Like, I, I mean, I kind of basically got it, but I thought well, I'm going to have to watch that again sometime. But it was at a time in my life when I didn't have a ton of time uh, to rewatch stuff. So I would rent them and watch them or whatever. And then I think when I, I got out of grad school, Mike, I, I started working and stuff and I rented that again one weekend, the little town I was living in. Um, and cause there wasn't much to do. And I, I watched it a couple of times. I was like, Oh, okay. And I mean, I've, I've played around with the, the menu where you could figure out how to watch the movie and forward. Like if you did the button combination, mm-hmm. right. Which was really kind of a fun Easter egg. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I went, I did that and I don't know. I just really, that was my introduction to him. And I thought, man, this guy's really interesting. And then I, uh, this was a few years later, flash forward. I'm married. And one of my wife's good friends is married to, to a guy, um, and Wade and I liked a lot of the same kind of stuff, even though we're very different people. And so he said, hey, man, you want to go to check out a movie? Let's go see this new Batman movie with uh, Christian Bale. And I said, yeah, isn't that done by the Memento guy? And he said, yeah. And I was like, okay, that's going to be weird. Like, I can't imagine that guy doing Batman, but okay. And I went and saw it, and I love Batman Begins. It's my favorite of the Batman trilogy he did. I know that may be controversial, but it's the truth. I've always liked that movie. There's nothing wrong with it, in my opinion. And I, I liked it, and I thought, well, that's a cool, fresh take on Batman. I think this is fun. So that was my introduction to Nola. And, to, and it's also the moment when I thought, this guy's really got something, because if he can put that kind of neat and trippy spin on something that is a big popcorn movie like batman like a franchise like that then this guy really knows how to do subject matter and so i i just liked him then and i i've i've seen everything he's done except dunkirk and there's a weird reason why i just missed that one um but I, I, yeah, I've seen everything else he's done. I went back and watched Following, um, which, you know, is what it is. Uh, I think it's a very cool experimental film. It's definitely something I think you would dig because having seen some of the work that you've done, some of the things you're into, I won't be surprised if you tell me how much you like that one. But I've seen all of his other ones in theaters, uh, again, except John Kirk. And I just, I happen to really think anytime I find out he's doing something, I'm like, I'm, I'm down for that. Like, you know, when Tenet was still going to come out, I was like, well, I'm, I'm totally on this because one, it's, Denzel's kid so yes to that more Denzel than our lives we all need because his kid looks just like him and I I'm, I'm down for whatever that's going to be like I'm, I'm always cool for that so I I've always thought of him as special I don't think he's perfect and I think you've done a really good job describing him as he's got a foot in Kubrick land and a foot in Spielberg land and that's funny because Spielberg and Kubrick of course were good friends oh yeah um, but approach things very differently from one another and I don't know. I just, I, I think that's a great way to describe him because I think Nolan is the, the best of those guys because whereas, and you know, we, we're almost done with the cubic retrospective of our film script. We've been doing it for several years now. And, and Kurt and I have realized like the Kubrick's biggest problem is that at one point he just became so powerful that like studios had to beat the film out of him to get him to let him go. Whereas Spielberg just churned stuff out for decades, you know, and, and would write one script to get three movies out of it, it you know, stuff like that. And sometimes it's like, Hey, is that too small? Is that too much? You know, you go back and look at it now and maybe be a little more cynical about it. 
it. But yeah, I, I've been a, I've been on the Nolan train though, kind of early on. Uh, and um, not even for any reason that I sought him out again, a friend recommended it. I watched Memento and thought this is really cool. I don't totally get it, but I'm digging it. And then another friend took me to see Batman begins and that kind of started the journey. Yeah. And, and you brought up a, re- a lot of really interesting points. And, and for me, you know, my first introduction with, I feel like a lot of people my age were they're introduced was the dark knight that i was in seventh grade when this movie came out uh i wasn't quite 13 so pg-13 like i I don't know how lax movie theaters are but i know like my mom didn't want me to see the movie because she thought that heath ledger was evil and 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 she didn't quite understand it and and she didn't want this being like a bad influence my mom's like pretty chill but that you know when your parents say don't do this or don't see this what's the first thing you want to do is see what they're telling you not oh, to see yeah. so i just and, and i felt left out because i remember all of my friends in middle school were just saying oh my god that movie was so awesome as you know a middle school boy would think the dark knight is and it, it is awesome but i remember i don't and i don't remember the first time seeing the dark knight i, I it had to have been on like pirated or something like with my at a friend's house it wasn't wasn't with my parents but that was my first introduction and, and not really understanding what it was I was watching. I didn't understand the subtext. I, I was just mesmerized by these performances and the visuals that, you know, they were, that no one was able to get across in this film. And then Inception followed soon after. So I guess it was the dark Knight and then Inception and Inception is just this, this huge phenomenon that I honestly think it was a game changer in early 2000s late 2000s cinema and it, it's even impacting us now it's it, it created cliches that we all love and hate at the same time and and so from there and then i got a little older and i started revisiting the other his other repertoire is canon of films and i've seen everything i mean i have them written down here because i was just curious to make sure i didn't miss anything uh memento is most definitely my favorite film of his i think it's the most intricate and that's saying a lot uh and i think it, it it's the most cohesive of all of his films i think everything works the best there uh i have seen following only once and i was in college when i was on netflix and yeah it's like you said it, it is what it is it's a fun experimental film uh i would have to revisit it to have to say more on it uh another thing that i keep forgetting i always forget the prestige is in his canon of films uh not to say that's yeah. his weakest uh i think insomnia is probably his weakest but that is a whole other conversation in itself um but yeah no i i really do enjoy seeing his films i think his best films are dunkirk and memento it's funny you said you haven't seen dunkirk and i think interstellar is his most ambitious film and you know speaking of like kubrick and all and i'm gonna be mentioning kubrick a lot or not a lot of a few more times in my notes but you know, you can definitely see his inspirations, but he also does his own spin on it. And oh, yeah. and and one thing that I said when, when, especially when referencing Kubrick, is that I think Nolan is the next Kubrick. And and certainly people love to analyze his films like he's Kubrick. Uh, just a quick side bit: I I just looked up the IMDb trivia for this movie, and I I scrolled through like a hundred items just to see like what people were saying. And let me read you a few of the things that it, it reminds me of the documentary of The Shining of just like the crazy <laughs> conspiracy theories. So this one is the movie's runtime is two hours and 28 minutes. Edith Piaf's song used in the movie is two minutes and 28 seconds. You're like, oh my God. Um, running time of the DVD is 8, 8, 8, 
eight seconds. Like, what the hell? Uh, there are 399 questions asked throughout the whole film. Like, what the hell? Like, what are, like, people, and some of these trivia that they write on IMDb, people are, like, really grasping at straws. Like, oh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy played opposite in The Revenant. Like, okay, that's not exactly trivia, but I, but reading some of these things, you're like, oh my God, like, people, like, he is making people think, whether it's, too deep about his films or you know like what we're doing now like people are talking about his films and I think that that is what I admire most about uh about Nolan is that he's able to get you know people like us movie buffs to analyze his films and as well as average moviegoers just to, to think about his art and I think that that is something that both Kubrick and Spielberg want. Spielberg wanted to be Kubrick and Kubrick wanted to be Spielberg. You know, Spielberg wanted to be the guy who made A Clockwork Orange, who made uh, Full Metal Jacket, who made 2001, uh, to more like art house critical or like acclaim like that. But Kubrick wanted to, I th from what I read, he wanted to be more like Spielberg and that he wanted to make these these pictures that were well well received and and became these icons in the moment. So I think it's really interesting how he can balance these two. No, I totally do. And, and a lot of stuff I want to kind of talk about there with, with Nolan. Um, I, the reason I haven't seen Dunkirk, if the honest truth is when it came out, I was really slammed at work, really busy, getting ready to do, make a move, all kinds of stuff like that. And it was just one of those, like, I'll get to that eventually. And the eventually has just never come around because I moved, started the new job, uh, started the podcast back up, and that has been gangbusters ever since. So, like, I just, I just haven't got to it. It's one of those, that, like, I'm eventually going to sit down and watch that movie. I just haven't done it. Um, so it's of no other reason other than I'm just lazy and haven't done that one yet. Um, it's funny you mentioned Dark Knight and middle school because I was most assuredly not in middle school when I saw that movie. <laughs> uh, but I went and saw that. I was at a I was at a conference and it was one of those like I had a free night and nothing to do uh, because the night activity I was going to go to got canceled because of, like a storm or something. So I remember I was in the middle of I don't know some some other city. Uh, in Alabama, I was living there at the time, and I just said, you know what, I'm going to go see this Dark Knight movie because I saw Batman Begins and everybody's talking about this movie, so I need to go see this. And I went and saw it, and I remember walking out of it going, I don't think I like that. I don't think I really dug that at all. And I told uh, Ron, uh, Ron's wife, Holly, is, is a good friend of mine, Ron on Filmstrip, and I remember telling Holly, I don't like this movie. This movie's not any good. I was like, this is a bad idea. She's like, no, 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 you, did, you missed it. You didn't get it. You need to go see it again. And usually when I hear that, I'm like, okay, if I have to think that much about it, it's, it's really worth it. But I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to give that a shot. Uh, I'll accept that maybe I didn't get it right. I'll try it again. And I went and saw it again. And I, I appreciated it more for, I think, the second time around. I think that's a movie that you grow to like more the second time around. And so I was like, you know what? I, I think this is good. I, I, not unlike a lot of other people, think that the third act is tacked on. It didn't need to be there, but probably was there because he, he later died and we had to make a lot of changes and yada, yada. Uh, but because I felt like the third act could have been the, a much better version of what the third movie became. But that's another, maybe another day we could talk about Dark Knight Rises. But I was down for Nolan at that point and everything else since. I, I remember watching Interstellar and I've only watched it twice. And I think the, the thing that's kept me from going back to it is like, I don't know that I have the capacity to think that much right now and watch a movie. 
because I remember, I remember going into that knowing like, okay, I'm going to really think about this and I'm not a scientist at all by nature. And so I had to really like pay attention to what was going on and then watching it at home again, I, I got a good, good headache from it. Uh, but I think it's neat and it's definitely ambitious. I believe you, you've nailed that one, Mike, is that that's his most ambitious work. And I do think it's very personal for him too. Um, but I, I don't know that I'll go back to that one unless, again, I just really want to have a conversation about it or something. Not to say it's bad, it's just not one that I have loved. I'm so glad you mentioned The Prestige. If people go back into the archives of film strip, you'll find Kurt and I did a, a duology once when Hollywood gets in this mm-hmm. thing where we're just going to make the same movie twice in one yeah, summer. Yeah, I, I remember these episodes well. Yeah, we did The Illusionist and we did The Prestige. And I had forgotten there was a Nolan movie too, but I happen to really like it. And I think it's one people have forgotten about. And I know Insomnia is not beloved by a lot of people. I happen to think that's pretty good. And I, I think it's well done. It's not one of Pacino's best work, but Pacino hasn't done good work in 40 years. So we can all just live with that and know that when you can get the best you can from him, it ain't half bad. And, uh, and so maybe that 40 years, he's pretty awesome, but you know, you, you get what I mean? Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I like that movie. I think it's fine. I, I think it's uh, Hillary Swank's best work ever. And I thought Robin Williams was really good in it. And so I was, I was a fan of all of that stuff. And so Inception and and what I've known about it coming you know into it and then what I've learned about it since you know how personal it was for him and how this was like his pet project and what he wanted to do and all of that kind of stuff I'm like man directors usually don't get to make their pet project early on they usually have to work toward that and the fact that the guy got to do that early on is is kind of cool yeah and another thing I like about Nolan is he's such a details man and like real quick about Inception or not Inception uh, Interstellar. I have the book, The Science of Interstellar, and oh my God, if you want your brain to, to melt, just read that book. Like, I, I've only gone halfway through it, like, especially like because the, the, they have Kip Thorne, who was the, the scientist who was talking about all this. He wrote this book, and he tried to simplify things for like people like me that just think space is so cool and saw Interstellar and want to have a better understanding of the science, and they break it down between like fact and fiction, theory versus uh, ideas. And and once they start talking about black holes, which is like early in this book, uh, I just had to put it down because I felt like half my head was falling in on itself. But I, I, I the details of this, and, and Inception is also a details movie, just everything, and not just the narrative stuff, just like the background details, which which will lead us into our next point, of what I've been calling Nolanisms. It's just what keeps popping up in his films, the motifs, the themes. And some directors have these recurring themes, you know, going back to Kubrick, the cynical viewpoint of society and man. I'm um, thinking of Damien Chazelle, the sacrifice and obsession for passion. Uh, David Lynch, the absurd visuals and the obsession with bizarre dreamscapes and nightmares. For Nolan, there's a lot of existentialism, human morality, like very cer- cerebral themes and i think the biggest one is the distortion of memory and manipulation of time so out of his i guess now 11 films with tenet six of these films have the manipulation of time serving some sort of narrative purpose or thematic purpose and and i think tenet possibly is if i i I don't really know too much about tenet but i think there's definitely going to be more time manipulation and so possibly seven so over half of his his canon of films involve manipulation of time and distortion of memories. And I think it, it, it really works for him. And, and, you know, inception is inception and memento. I would say lead the pack of 
of time manipulation to, to like the oh. upteenth degree. Complete. And I want to throw in another one too that I think is a Nolanism. It's probably something that's really happened since he's become more famous, I guess you'd say, or at least have more clout or whatever. And it is the, what I like to call the flood of the familiar to put you at ease in a situation where you're not at ease. And I really can pin that down to if there was an actor that was popular in the 1980s that you think disappeared somewhere in the early nineties and you haven't seen, guess what? They're probably going to pop up in a Christopher Nolan film in a pivotal role. And then you're going to go, Oh, I remember that guy, you know, and, or that girl or that woman. And, and it's also finding a muse and to be able to, you know, bring one to the screen. I think, well, and I'll say it now, I think Marianne Cotillard is just wonderful in almost every way in everything I've ever seen her in. And I would have never known who she was if Christopher Nolan didn't put her in this movie. I don't mm-hmm. think I would have ever seen her. And I don't think Michael Mann would have put her in Public Enemy where she's totally miscast, but is awesome in, <laughs> in the movie anyway. I don't think anybody would have talked about her. Again, she would have been the famous European French actress that she is. But I don't know that I would have seen her. But I, the, the thing, I really want to go back to that, that bit of the the use of the familiar to put you at ease in a situation where maybe you're not you know it's finding a face and a motif and something that you're like oh i know that person from something else and then it you know now it sort of seeps into you and i think you can also lay that into the michael caning of almost every movie that he's in michael Caine has a is like the white morgan freeman he can just put you at ease with his voice and just what he does and his presence while sometimes absurd and kind of strange as to why he'd be playing the parts he's playing make total sense when they unravel in Nolan's world. And I think those are cool things to note when you're watching his movies. Yeah. And, and this goes into like, again, I was saying like, I really like the art house Nolan, I should say, but I really don't like the pandering blockbuster Nolan. And I don't know if pander is, is the right term, but and, and the films that I don't think he panders in is following Memento, and those are his early works, Interstellar and Dunkirk, and and possibly The Dark Knight. But I, I don't, I don't want this to seem like I don't like Nolan either. Like it's quite the opposite. I'm just trying to be a little bit more critical, uh, because yeah. Nolan is one of those guys that you know when I see that he is releasing a movie, I'm going to go see it in theaters. He's on the list with guys like P.T. Anderson, Tarantino. Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Robert Eggers, like those guys are, they're, they're elevating film to a new level. And I think Nolan, especially, like, I think he's still like in the preservation of film. And I really appreciate that. And he want like, he, he's jumped on the bandwagon of shooting in 70 millimeter with, with Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson. Like I really, mu- I really much appreciate that. It's just when, and we'll get into these bits when we start talking about the movie is, I just feel like when he tries to be that that Spielberg blockbustery director is when his work starts to suffer, it, to some degree, uh, mostly in the narrative perspective. I think his visuals as the blockbuster are spectacular, but the narrative of the blockbuster is when it starts to, oh. for me, not degrade. That's again, I think that's too harsh of a word, but it, it impacts the movie in a negative light for me. And I think that's fair. I, th- I think that's a very fair way to say. I mean, look, there are things about Spielberg that drive me bonkers. 
uh, when you go back and even watch some of his beloved films that I that I happen to really love, and I'm like, oh, it's just, there's that sheen, there's that Spielberg schmaltz to just come right on in and pop a top, you know, as always. Uh, but sometimes I like that. Like, I know a lot of people banged on Ready Player One just to talk about Spielberg for a minute. I happen to really like that movie. I thought that was the perfect touch for what, if you've read the book, is a really dark and kind of sad book. He took the most fun of it and made a fun, goofy movie that riffed on all the stuff that made him famous. I was down for that. I thought that was cool. You know, so sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I, I agree with you on the Nolan part. And, and you know, I kind of said it, I didn't really care for the Dark Knight Rises. I still don't. I mean, I own it and I've watched it again in the last couple of years and it's, I still feel the same way about it. I feel like it was a movie that the studio got their hands on and that he had absolutely no interest in making anymore after two things had happened. One, the Dark Knight was huge. He Ledger died. That, that messed him up. And then Inception was massive. And he was like, why do I need to keep doing this crap? Like, I don't, I don't think he was interested in it at all. I don't think any of the cast was either. I could almost prove it by their <laughs> lazy acting. But, you know, he got through it and, and it's done. It is what it is, you know. And they, ha I mean, they haven't made a Batman movie since. I know they're trying now uh, to make another one, but they haven't made a standalone since because they're all getting compared to that. So, I mean, he left his mark on it. But I, I always find it amazing when directors come back to finish things that they no longer have any interest in but they just sort of feel compelled to, well, now we must do this, you know, and uh, I kind of feel J.J. Abrams did that with Rise of Skywalker. That's a whole other podcast um, where people can go listen to Filmstrip and hear two hours about that. Uh, there's other ones too that have come back to the thing that they created and that's like, okay, well, we're here to wrap this up. You know, it's like Kiss Alive 3. Why? Because we don't have any other ideas. Okay. <laughs> And, and one more, and so I've like, what I'll say one more thing before I ask you the final question before we get into the film is Inception. It's, it's funny. I was trying to think about like, when did I see this movie? Like I can remember not vividly seeing, but I remember like the time frame seeing the dark Knight, And, but I don't really remember the first time I watched this movie. I know it's before I'd seen the dark Knight, or after I'd seen the dark Knight. So I have like a general time frame, like 12 13 years old but i don't remember sitting there and if it wasn't for the dark knight and just knowing when they re were released i would i this film has always been just omnipresent with me which i think is is really interesting and and like it's like it's like saying like growing up in a, in a world of film without citizen kane like it's like we can't say that we we know we like we are living in the world of film impacted by Citizen Kane. So I am living in a world of film impacted by Inception. I can't remember the first, I can't remember film before Inception because I wasn't into movies. I've just grown up in a world with Inception. And I also think it's interesting, like, and you mentioned it earlier with Inception and Nolan, you know, this was, this is his pet project. You know, he had this banger of a film of the Dark Knight and he could pretty much do whatever he wanted. And he did this and he was working on this, since like the early 2000s i think he had, it was like eight eight or ten years he was working on the script and that's insane to me like that's incredible that he was like it's such a personal story which i think we can get into the themes of this and i and i, and I would just want to ask you this last question is and i think it's it's kind of a fun fun little tidbit when talking about inception and dreaming is jay have you ever lucid dreamed Yes, I have. Um, not as much anymore, I think, as the older I am. I, I will dream stuff off of if I watch something that's real, I don't know, thought-provoking, I'll dream parts about it again or maybe redream pieces of it. But I can tell you now 
a lucid dream I had when I was seven or eight, Mike. I remember almost everything about it and I know what inspired it. I had gotten real big into listening to the Eagles. It's one of my favorite bands. <laughs> Screw you, Big Lebowski. <laughs> and I, I have always loved that. And I had a record that was Eagles Live and they do a killer version of Hotel California. Way better than the Unplugged one in my opinion because they are jamming out. And I, the, the imagery of that song is evocative anyway but from that i had this three-part dream where i was with a group of people and we were running from the law for some reason and that, that was never explained and then we wound up in florida at a haunted hotel called the hotel california where all the things from the hotel california tried to eat us and then we took a rocket ship to mars and i'm not too certain but i think i had seen a movie like a bad movie called moon 44 or something like that with michael perry in it and it was pretty much a replay of that but i remember that dream i'm, I'm 43 years old i had that dream 34 35 years ago and i just retold it to you in its entirety i mean i remember that specifically so yes i do have lucid dreams and lucid dreams yeah and i i was telling you i also have i've i've lucid dreamed a few times just by accident i think after inception i i got became obsessed with the idea of trying to control your dreams and it wasn't just entirely fictitious like you could become so self-aware that you could recognize when you're dreaming and then control the dream and i think that's a really interesting concept so when i was in high school i would try and do it and then i and then it wasn't happening got discouraged and like it would come in waves and you know the first time i well the first time i ever recognized i was dreaming uh i was like i, th I was like walking on a track with my friends and i just remember stopping saying i'm dreaming and my heart rate jumped up to like 210 and I remember like everything just faded to white and then I woke up and I felt like I was having a heart attack and I, like just the adrenaline rush that I had. And then the, the most recent that I remember was probably like a year or two ago. And I, I recognized I was dreaming and I just started like doing random crap that you would do just like, Oh, let's see if I'm dreaming. Like, uh, like something like from Birdman, like flicking on the lights, like with telekinetic powers, like just throwing shit with your mind. And I remember like I started having my heart rate going up and I was like, okay, there's one thing that I've always wanted to do if I was lucid dreaming. So it, it felt like this, the light was coming and that I was going to wake up soon. So I went into a bathroom, I filled up the bathtub, I jumped into it. And then I came, when I came up on the surface, I was at a beach. And that was like the one thing that I wanted to do when I, when I could figure out that I was lucid dreaming was jump into a tub of water and come out in like a beach or an ocean or, or like a swimming pool. And I was able to do that. And, and I think I asked you if you've loved, ever lucid dreamed, because I feel like no one definitely has lucid dreamed and, and this idea of controlling the dream. And I, and it, it gives another appreciation of like what's going on in this film. And one more thing, I just want to, I, I was telling you offline, I, I want to show you my notes for this film because I feel like it is very, uh, it, this is probably what the screenplay looked like at one point. Like there's notes, there's symbols all over the place. There's mm -hmm. scribbles. Like there's you're boxes seeing it. drawing things together. Yeah. yeah there, it's, it's just all over the place. I and can only imagine this is what like your lecture notes looked like from when you were in college. This is what my, this is what my <laughs> a conversation with me looks like as everyone's <laughs> been listening. Like I'm, I'm scatterbrained is not exactly the right word. It's just, there's so many things going on that I, I just have to, like, I speak in tangents 
And that's the only you're, way you're I intuitive. Get there. You're an intuitive like I am on like the Myers-Briggs scale. And, like and intuitives thinking connect the dots. We, we don't think in list columns and formation. Like we, we sort of understand information by association and that leads to note patterns that look like what you just showed me and what people can't see. But it, it also leads to thoughts like what would you need to be able to create a movie like this? Uh, which the funny part of it is, is that you'd have to be incredibly disciplined and organized to lay it out in a way for it to even come together, which is probably why it took you 15 years to do it. Exactly. And so without further ado, let's get into Inception, like 30 minutes into the podcast. Um, maybe I'll put this as like Chris Nolan and Inception, but uh, because we, we talked a good amount about him. But yeah, let's get right into this movie. So this opening sequence, I trying to so I'm trying to feel like feel out how we should talk about this. Like we're, we definitely should go and like in order of the film, uh, this podcast has been evolving that some episodes like I did with, with Brian, with the master, we just kind of talked about the themes and the characters and cinematography and what Paul Thomas Anderson was going for. And then as, but recently, as I've been going through the Marvel movies with my buddy, Jake, we've been talking in chronological order of the events of the film. And I feel like this is going to be a mix of both because there's a lot going on in this movie. And honestly, some bits, I, I feel like we can, just fast forward and because I, I feel like whenever they're dreaming in this film, it's the most interesting bits. I feel like reality yeah. is very much like reality here. It's, it's not, I mean, there's some, like, there's some moments that I think we should talk about when they're in reality, but I feel like the meat, the crux of what we want to talk about is like when they're dreaming and it starts with this opening sequence. Yeah. So this opening sequence, it's, it's kind of, uh, I, I guess that we, we start off, Leo is is on like the on this beach is being washed by water. We're kind of being thrown right into it. Uh, it's it seems like we're being we're, we're set in some you know like uh, I don't want to say feudal, but you know somewhere on like a, an Asian coastline. And you know we're we're talking. He's being fed. He's almost like a prisoner. He's got a gun on him. Meets this very old guy that they seem you know there's a connection between them. And then there's a hard cut, and you know we're jumping back and forth with, with Sato as this, who's this character. And they're talking about establishing the first rules of the film. And I, and what I want to say about this, this opening is it's extremely disorienting and just throws you right into the scene. But that's, I mean that in the most positive of, of ways, because I think that's what this movie is. And that's what dreams are. They're very disorienting. And Leo even says it later on, like you don't remember the beginning of your dreams. You just remember being in them and I think that this is a very clever way and the only way that you can open a film about dreaming is just throwing you into it I agree with you there and I'll say this about this movie and it's something that I've come to understand uh, having watched it again for 10 years now is that if you want to make this very complicated allegory about you know a number of things it's there and the landscape is there for you to do so. If you want to you know, really pick apart all the little, when he's got the ring on, it means this. When the gun's pointed this way, maybe all that stuff is there. And it's all in the IMDb comment section if you want that. But if you just want to take the movie for what it is, the movie will tell you everything you need to know. This is the thing you got to know about Nolan movies is that even something complicated like Interstellar, which is uber complicated, it will tell you what, what the movie is about. That movie is about Matthew McConaughey and his connection to his daughter. That's what that movie is about. Everything else is the window washing in which that story gets told. But it is about a father's love for his daughter, you know, and, and 
passing on knowledge and love of knowledge and all that to the next generation. That's what that movie's about. This movie is also about something very simple. It's about a man who wants to get back to his family because he got too caught up in a fantasy and it cost him dearly. And now he will go through hell and high water, literally, to get back to them. And and it's a movie about dream thieves. And you, it, it, could that exist? Is that real? Well, guess what? In this world, it does, because we're going to throw you right into one. And that's what I love about this movie and about any of these movies is normally I would ding a movie for starting in media res or starting with the end of the beginning. I, I generally hate that because I think it's just cheap. You know, it's been done so many times. But in this case, it makes total sense because by the time you get to the end of the movie, you're like, wait a minute, did we start here? Because you kind of forget that you start here. It's, it's almost easier to remember that you start in, you know, Lucas Haas and the apartment and, you know, whatever fake Middle Eastern country they're supposed to be in while Ken Watanabe's, you know, sleeping on with his mistress or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And I, I also really like a lot of like just what they're setting up here i think like oh we're, we're using these terms like extractor architects you know the mark I, I like the language that they're using here like we can protect you we, we can train we can train you to you like to protect your mind when you're most vulnerable and this this language and they keep using it throughout and they keep adding to it you know terms like forger and and you know like the, we have to get here the mark this is our target they're using language that's very associated with like heisting and like you said mm. in the beginning of this conversation it's the ultimate heist film and i also want to say like leonardo dicaprio and joseph gordon levitt are absolutely show stealing in this film i think that their banter and chemistry it's like this ebb and flow it's it's so it's going so well and and just i th and this is a film that i keep watching i'm like oh man like that's joseph gordon levitt and maybe it's the same with like looper as well i, I it's just so funny like i watch him in things like don john or uh i forget the tv show that he was in in the 90s but a oh, third rock from the sun yeah third rock so, yeah. yeah and and I, it's like i like i'm like this is that same person like oh mm -hmm. my god uh so yeah i i just and like I said, they're explaining who they are, the rules. They're, they're starting to establish the rules. They're, it's a little bit, it's not so much exposition. They're just, you know, telling the audience, like, uh, this is what's going to happen and we're going to stick by that. And it's also introducing the idea of a dream within a dream, the, the time manipulation, and, and also this really unique idea of locking memories away in like the sub like the really deep in your subconscious it can manifest into anything yeah can I think the first way. time that that got introduced to me was actually in a stephen king book and it turned out to be the best part of the movie they made of it dream catcher where they talk about mm. the guy's memory warehouse i remember my dad read that book before i did and he said you should read this this is how i always talk about how my mind works like the memory warehouse so when i read it i was like oh yeah and years later of course i saw what that looked like but i i remember watching this movie and going like how oh, is this kind of like a dream catcher and i i can't prove it but wouldn't be surprised if nolan had read that and kind of you know, cribbed from it yeah and Another like thing that I really like about like the time manipulation here is like this is art house Nolan. We're not he's using visuals to explain how and just start to insinuate how dreams are being like time is being slowed in these dreams with these slow-mo shots. Like they're not just for style. And I mean they look awesome. And now with today with YouTube, like slow-mo guys, they had YouTube they had a uh, slow-mo uh shows on Discovery at some point. Like people are obsessed with slow-mo just because of the images you can see that you know the naked eye cannot but 
he's utilizing the slow-mo in such a unique way that it's subliminally telling us, hey, time is time is very loosey-goosey here. You know, we can manipulate it in in certain ways. And here we're also introduced to Maul, that this 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 character that is haunting Leo. And in and even just in short dialogue with Joseph Gordon Levitt, like, what is she doing here? She's not supposed to be here. Go handle this problem. And just them talking back and forth. And I, I really do like what's going on in this opening sequence. I think you've nailed something down there. The fact that two things, Wally Fister's camera work as a cinematographer, and this is unmatched. I mean, it's unbelievable what he and Nolan were able to create with these shots and the, the mix of CGI and physical reality and all those kind of things. And we can get into those as, as it unfolds, particularly when Ellen Page comes on the scene. But Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, and, and let's be honest, Tom Hardy, everybody that gets into this movie, they all have a rapport with one another that if if there was a loose strand in there, if somebody wasn't good, it wouldn't work. Like it would really pull the movie apart. And the casting in this is phenomenal because you've got everybody in there going with it. And the thing I think you can say about DiCaprio is whether you like him or not, or you like everything he's in, there's no doubt that the dude commits to a role and really puts a lot into it and can morph into a lot of different people when he needs to be. And you take a guy like that and you surround him with a group of genius character actors. And that's what everybody else in this cast is, are people that can play off of a strong lead and they all bring something neat to that table while Leo is you know, kind of putting this big you know, tapestry up on the wall. Yeah, and I think Leo, when given the right director, he can have amazing performances. I think Tarantino is, is Leo's best friend. I think every performance that... Uh, that Tarantino has collaborated with Leo has been spectacular. Scorsese hit or miss. Uh, Nolan, very, I, I, right here. I think this is spectacular. And, you know, in the uh, again, the visuals, just keep, I'm going to keep saying this, the visuals are so amazing, especially when the dream starts to collapse. Uh, you know, with, when when he's being slapped around and he's being thrown across the room or, you know, the, the uh, this Middle Eastern riot or this riot is destroying his own dream and like he's starting to wake up and he's like oh god like we have to he gets in the safe it starts going through the papers and then the kick happens when he gets thrown into the tub and this it's it's almost like a scene from titanic when the bulkhead breaks it's just this flood of water and just that scene of leo looking up at the water as it just starts to cascade into this dojo almost and also edith piaf is introduced at this moment too this idea of this is the song that is the let the person know who's the the controller of the dream that you know we're about to wake up you know the 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 real world the dream is about to conclude and this movie is what made me fall in love with her music is specifically this movie when i was uh in eighth grade or the 14, 15, when I saw this movie. And again, Nolan is such a smart filmmaker that he's like, when he picks and chooses these things, it makes sense. So, you know, he choose, I'm not going to even try and pronounce this in French because I'm just going to butcher it with my marble mouth, but you know, the, the English translation is no regrets. And I think that is very fitting. And also the tune is just super great. And then that goes into the sound mixing of how Hans Zimmer would slow down the tempo and essentially write the score around a slowed down version of No Regrets. So I, I think this whole opening segment is is so spectacular. And this is the quote Tom Savini when, 
when he's talking about Dawn of the Dead, you know, this is the beginning of the movie. Like, what's going to happen as this keeps going on? And that's what's neat about this is that to be able to start on such a high bar and then to bring it forward and to do something new and different, you realize you're in for a real ride. I mean, again, I think about something like 2001 from Kubrick. That movie starts off and like you don't know where you are. It's you know prehistoric times. There's no dialogue, and not that there's ever going to be a lot in 2001. But to go from the bone to the spaceship, I mean, what a jump! But it's it's perfectly earned by the narrative that's in the story in front of you. The difference in this is that Nolan is really good at writing dialogue. I mean, he really is. And he's good at writing little details. Like there's this neat thing that they're doing when they're in the Sado dream and they're in the dojo or whatever, and they're shooting everybody. They hold their hands out to catch the ejecting bullet. Yeah. I mean, which is such a, by the way, as somebody who shot a few handguns, that is such a ridiculous idea. One, it never comes out the same way and also hot, but <laughs> you know, sure. I mean, yeah, but it's a great idea because you don't want to make the noise. Cause then that's how the, the, they'll know you're behind you. Never mind that you're using silenced weapons as it is. And that's not how they sound when you shoot them anyway, but whatever. It's, it's the whole idea of that. If you're in your spy dream, that's the kind of thing you would do as the spy. And I kind of get it you know, into some Philip K. Dick world. I do think there's a lot of Philip K. Dick influence in this, particularly when it comes to dreams. If you read a lot of Dick's work, a lot of it was about dreams and stuff. And if you read, we can remember it for you wholesale, which is a different experience than the total recall movie. You kind of get the same ideas. And it's not the, the only time that Philip K. Dick wrote about that stuff, but I, as someone who grew up reading that stuff and loved it. And then again, liked Kubrick movies and was watching this, I was just like, Oh yeah, this is, this is everything I kind of wanted to be because I, I've said before, the third act of this movie is the best James Bond movie that they haven't made yet. And I think the whole movie could be a good Bond movie if you could somehow or another believe Bond was a dream thief. Yeah, exactly. And 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 that transition to transitions to back to the riot when Leo wakes up from his kick and I think this again it's adding more tension and and the idea of the subconscious is looking for the I guess like the invading host of the dreamer and 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 I, but this is also where where Sado is impressed with what they're able to do. He, I guess he's he's heard about this like these dream these dream stealers or like the dream extractors, but he's never experienced it until now. And how he's going to utilize that? The one nitpick of the scene that I thought was weird was the architect, where where Sado's like, oh, it's my dream, and the architect architect who was the kid in Witness, I think. He he's, yeah. <laughs> he said, which only reason I know that was because you brought up now playing. I did listen to their podcast of this. So it's funny that, you know, we were able, that came up so naturally, but, you know, Stuart brought that up that this is the kid from Witness, but he says, oh no, it's my dream. But then the subconscious attacks him instead. And they, and I guess that ends the dream. So that's just a nitpick where I, I throughout, they say, well, if you're the dreamer, your subconscious is looking for the invader. And so they attacked, it was interesting. That was just a nitpick for me, a narrative nitpick. But we get back to this train, jobs bust, they split up. But we get this interesting line where, you know, I'm getting off at this station. He's like, well, he's not going to search the whole train. Well, I don't like trains. And I think that's a very interesting line that, that pays off later. Although I, a little, like showing my hands, I wish the, the train motif was a little bit better utilized in the whole film outside of just right here or just what they do with it in the rest of the film but i i think this is a very kick-ass opener and a very good introduction to this world that nolan has created 
I think the cool thing about heist movies for them to work in general is it's almost always because something has to go wrong that then the you spend the rest of the movie writing in some way. And what we're learning here and what we will learn about this is that Dom, the Leonardo DiCaprio character, his goal is to get back to his family, to clear his name enough so that he will not be blamed for his wife's suicide, um, who makes it look like she, you know, he, she was killed by him. I mean, because she's so lost in the dream world that she can't wake up or she, she refuses to wake up and kills herself thinking this is how we'll all wake up together. But just in case, I, so you'll jump out this window with me. I called your lawyer and told him that you read this letter because you're probably going to kill me. You know, which I mean, this is like a lifetime movie all of a sudden. And it happens in the middle of this movie. But his whole goal is to get back to his family, right? And the, this is the step of trying to do that. And what he realizes is that, dang, now I have really screwed up because the Cobalt Corporation is, is pissed and they're going to be all over me, including, you know, Sato, but he's got a deal for me. And he seems like the kind of guy that could maybe pull the strings I need to get back home. So I'm going to do this one last job to set up. And it's when I also realized, and if you, if you've seen the dark Knight, you know, Christopher Nolan is a huge Michael Manmark and loves heat. And what I find cool about heat is that that movie has been made three times. Now you had heat, you had the dark Knight, and then skyfall did it again, which skyfall is like doing dark Knight, doing heat. Dark Knight was doing heat for Batman. And you realize how much Nolan loved the, the way that movie was paced in the tension. And the central piece was that Macaulay was trying to do one last big score so he could go away, but he ran across the one guy that was not going to let it go. And that's kind of the Caprio here. He's got to get the one big move to get back to where he wants to. And he crossed the wrong dude in Sado. And now he's got to make it right with him or else he's double screwed. Yeah. And, and following that, that, like that, that scene of just like, well, I, I need, I need you to help like in, infiltrate this, uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the other, the opposition, the, his dreams. I need you to, to, to defame and, and, and have him take down his own company and this idea of Inception. Joseph Gordon-Levitt thinks Inception's impossible, but then we get this idea of, no, Inception is possible. Just trust me on this one. And following the scene is like, well, we need, the, we need to get the gang back together. We need to build the team. And Ellen Page is introduced in this film. So I want to ask you, Jay, what, what is your opinion of Ellen Page in this film? Not so much of her as an actress. I think she's a fantastic actress, but specifically in this film, what what are what are your thoughts of Ellen Page? You know what I really like about it, Mike, is that it is against the general casting for this. Generally, you would go for the kind of it girl, you know, to be in this part, right? And you give her this cool role. And, and look, let's for lack of a better way of saying it, you would go and get um, Anne Hathaway to do this because it's playing a little against type for her but she's you know likable enough the audience can jump in or whatever and when you get ellen page you now have gotten the smart girl next door so you automatically set aside the idea of like oh she's going to be a love interest for the lead no she's not she's there to do a job and she's the avatar for the audience and i think she has such a way about her that i guess the only way i can describe it is unassuming that makes it easy for you to just listen to her talk i mean you you've listened to different lecturers and things like that through the years and what makes them work is the fact that they don't 
come off like they, 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 you know, they know more than you, but they don't make you feel stupid for listening to them. And so you go along with what they're going to say and you kind of follow their journey because it makes sense for you to do so. And that's what I like about her. I think she does a good job of explaining the relatively unexplainable to us in this movie, just so we can be along for the ride. Yeah. And I, I, she is that like right away. She is the the character, like uh, the or the the character for the audience to, you know, for people to explain these things, uh, and that is the first kind of ding I have against this movie is it's it's a lot of exposition, and at least I mean at least I, I will give it the exposition makes sense for the most part, but there's so much exposition even in the final act of the film they're still dumping exposition of what's going on and at least nolan can make it seem sort of naturalistic that it's more like inquisitive and people it's not just oh what's this oh well this is the the grand budapest whatever this is this is what we need to do to do this this is this item like this isn't the the macguffin that we need to go after at least like it seems naturalistic but my thing is I don't really like Ellen Page's character in this in this film. I think she's only used as a tool for exposition to be dumped on. And 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 that doesn't really sit well with me cuz she's one of two out of like the, all the male leads. She is one of two female leads of the film. And the other one is is the villain, but I think I do enjoy like Maul's character cuz it's a little bit more fleshed out. And it's a little bit more three-dimensional, but Ellen Page is, doesn't really have much of an arc in this film. But then again, Leo is really the only one who has an arc. Like her not having an arc is the same as you know Tom Hardy doesn't have one. Uh, you know Joseph Gordon-Levitt doesn't have one. Like they're just members of the team. But it it does feel weird when she's the only like one of the only female characters, and and she isn't really given much to do. Even in the like she's the architect. Yes, she builds the world, but. She doesn't really, in my opinion, she doesn't really contribute to the narrative other than being Snoopy and, and going into, into Cobb's mind and, and, and like pushing the issue. But it's, but it's not like she's not the, the conscious of, of Cobb or of, of Leo's character. She just is there for the audience to witness things. And I, I don't really, I don't know, that doesn't really sit well with me throughout the movie. Oh, see, and that's the thing is, I like it. I like the fact that she is our exposition. There's got to be someone that can explain all of this to us, or else you have to have multiple people do it. And then that almost feels like too much. Like they have Joseph Gordon Levitt and Tom Hardy do a little bit of that, but they mostly do it through playful banter with each other. So they kind of pick up, you know, details that you don't necessarily need to figure it out. You have to have Ariadne there to tell us what in the hell is going on. Because otherwise, it, it, I mean, really, this movie would cease to make any sort of sense. Like, you have to have a character that is completely outside of this. And that's also kind of a tenet of heist movies, too, right? Again, I go back to Heat. He doesn't have much of a character in it, but Dennis Haysbert is kind of a neat character if you knew what the original idea was for him in Heat and everything like that. He gets thrown in at the last minute because the other guy gets outed, and they have to have a last-minute replacement. That's what she is, too. Lucas Haas screws up and gets taken off by the Cobalt Corporation, seemingly to be thrown off a bridge or buried with Jimmy Hoffa or whatever, you know, and you have to have somebody new to come in that one can do the job, but two can also ask the questions that the audience needs to ask. Because what you're supposed to know and realize is that these people are so good at this and have done this so many times. I mean, they don't even, some of them don't even realize how good they are at what they do, right? Like, uh, 
I, I don't think Arthur realizes how deep and how good Dom really is at doing things and you know the fact that he's done Inception and what that looks like when you when you really pull it off you gotta have somebody to explain this I dug it man I I I, uh, I mean I'm, you know you, you definitely can have your opinion on it and I'm not gonna change your mind I'm just telling you for me dude I was with her I thought she was a cool thing to have here and having Ellen Page do that again takes away the standard like quote uh, where's the romance trope that you would normally get from a character like that yeah, no, and I, yeah, that's that's that's. I I didn't really think about it in that way. Uh, I I do think that we we need it is essential we have a character that things are explained to. I mean, like, I think of Empire Strikes Back perfectly. Like, Luke is the perfect character for this. Like, he he's thrust into this world that he doesn't know. And you know, I'm thinking of Yoda, like being the train, like being the master, teaching the student, and we are able to experience this through Luke. Um, and but I also yeah so I do agree that we do need that character for this exposition, as well as we we also get this through here we get the introduction to the the idea of the totems you know it's mm. your tether to the real world, and only the the person who owns the totem has to they're the only one that can know exactly like the the niche of it or like the the, the detail of it you know uh, Arthur has the loaded die Ellen Page she has the uh, I guess the the chess piece, and what I think is interesting is we we see, uh, a Cobb's a Leo's character. His is the t is the is the top that we've seen throughout. Oh, can, can I throughout can I jump film. in real quick on that real quick? Well, I I think I know what you're gonna say. Yeah. Um, are you gonna bring up the ring? I don't think that's his total. That's 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 Maul's total. Well, and that's what I was gonna say is yeah. that it's interesting because he keeps this top with him but it's not his it's his wife's totem which is which is another reason like if, you, if you're ever starting to go and get into the rabbit hole of like what's reality and what's not or whatever the, the truth of it is and i mean nolan has copped to this too is that if you want to read all the other stuff you can but the truth is is when he's wearing the wedding ring that's the real world that's not the real world that's the dream that's his totem when, you know, when he's without that, you know, he's back in the real world because his wife is dead and he hung on to the one thing he could hang on to from her. And so I, I think that's her totem and his is the ring. Yeah. I, and I think that's a really interesting point to notice is that, hang on, that's not his, that's not his, his totem. And we just, and I think it's, it's very purposeful. And this is where the very intelligent screenwriter and the narrative author that uh, Nolan is, is that, you know, we just have this whole bit of Arthur explaining, it has to be unique to you. No one else can know it. But now uh, Cobb is using his wife's totem. And I, and I did read about the, the ring and, but it was after I had watched the movie and I was like, well, I'm not about to go and rewatch like two and a half hours, especially with work and all this stuff. Like I, I'm, I don't really want to do that. So, but next time I watch it, I'm going to have that idea. But I think that this, this totem talk introduction is super important to the end of the film, which we'll get to as well. But yeah. And, and moving on, you know, we get, we're building the team even more. We have Tom Hardy, his intro as the forger. He is the, He's the chameleon that will, he's the actor that will be thrust into this and, and try and extract information in both reality and the dream world. And so we get this, this chase sequence that I think the chase is okay, but I, I do like how like everything is brought up later. And this is, you know, 
I th- I feel like Tom Hardy is trying to channel like a suave James Bond like character. Like he's the smooth talker, he's the charmer. He always seems to have everything in control, and I I really do like Tom Hardy's role in this in this. And I think this is one of the beginning of of Tom Hardy's working relationship with Nolan. I I think Tom Hardy is so much fun in this movie. In a lot of ways, he's the comic relief along with Jason Gordon-Levitt in this movie and particularly the way the two of them kind of work together like you can tell they've worked together in the past but you know it's not like they would be friends otherwise except that they both work with dom or whatever and i like that you know if you want to follow the this is all a big metaphor for a hollywood production and what that's like you know he's the actor you know that you're trying to please and stuff the thing i love most about it though is that it's the only tom hardy film i've ever seen where i can actually understand what he's saying uh, and that includes a lock where it's just two hours of him talking on a cell phone in a car. Um, so I, I appreciate that, that he, he wasn't trying to play off some strange accent or do something weird. He was just being himself. And, and I thought he was good. I, I think he's, he's a ton of fun when you watch him morph between being, you know, a pretty woman in a dress or being, a, you know, Tom Berenger or whatever he's supposed to be, you know, he can just, do what he needs to do and he has these looks on his face and particularly that, that last bit again where they're in the snow castle and all the shooting and killings happening and stuff i'm like man this dude is trying not to be james bond and i could i could be there for i, I kind of like it i don't think it'll ever happen he's way too tattooed to be bond and i don't think they'll ever go for it but i do like him and i thought he was a, a lot of fun to add to this cast because he's not asked to do a ton you just realize he's really good at what he does and he's really smart. And I think you get that in that scene where he and DiCaprio are just sitting across from the table talking to each other before the Cobalt guys all show up and start shooting at him. Yeah. And if Tom Hardy isn't going to be James Bond, I think he makes a killer uh, Max Rokotansky. So yeah, well, hey, why can't he be a Bond villain? I would say, I think this dude's meant to play more villains than he does. I know you played Bane, but he could be a, a, a hell of Bond villain, or at least a henchman. Something. I mean, shit, he played Bronson super well, so I think that he could he, he can channel that super well. Um, and, and you know, following this, now we have, like, the more, I guess, details, like, planning of the heist. You know, we have the special conto- concoction of the sedative, which, again, the details, I, I think, I like that detail that it doesn't affect, like, the inner ear, so, like, the vestibular stuff, which is just how they plan on synchronizing the kick, is that supposedly they say you should wake up when you're with the falling sensation and i like that detail and it enables some amazing stuff later on when they start doing the heist but it 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 seems like it they only it only works when it's convenient and that you know when we are seen with the special concoction the sedative you know we we have arthur being you know tipped over and then he's waking up and he jolts up but i guess like the tipping and being thrown in a car and then being rammed into a side rail doesn't count as that and i know that's a nitpick but why have this line why establish this if if we're not going to follow up with that i think it's a fair nitpick though like i'll tell you now like this movie is not perfect under any circumstances it's got its holes and that's one of them i think the hardest thing for me to ever really come around to understanding and maybe having a good I guess a good feeling about sort of going with is the idea of the kicks and what the kick means. And, and, you know, you got to go with the kick and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think that's cool in concept. I don't know that it totally makes sense for me. 
and I just have to go with it. It's one of those that like, I'm going to have to give this movie this if I'm going to watch it and, you know, have any relationship with it at all. But I'm with you. It's not that it, it's not great. It's not the greatest idea. Uh, but they've got to have some way of waking you up and the idea of like, oh, when you fall, you never hit the ground in a dream, right? Because that's, uh, that's what wakes you up. And so it makes sense. I think the best version of that being executed is watching Arthur, what he has to do when everything goes zero gravity because everybody's falling off the bridge and the other layer down and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's having to tie everybody up and blow the bomb at the right second. All, all that stuff is fun because it builds tension. But as a narrative device, like the kick is the weakest part of the whole idea. Like it really is. But I just have to go with it and say, okay, I'm going to give this movie that that's the, you know, of all the mulligans it wants me to give it, that's the one I'm going to give them to not have to explain to me. Because I think if they explained it anymore, it would, it would just be, you get lost in it. Like you could get real in the weeds with that. And then it's, and, and certainly if you want to get lost in the weeds on it, there are internet pages galore for you people. So go and check them out. But yeah. I was not there for that. Like I, I didn't need that. I was willing to just go with, okay, yes, we have to have something that wakes us up. And in each level of the dream, time is going to move you know so much slower and stuff like that which again i think you got to get out the interstellar calculators to figure out like what the rate of dreaming is and from one level to the next but it's it's enough to be able to go like oh okay yes the deeper you go the slower it takes everything else to react to you so i went with it for that but um nah, i don't really love the kicks and, and i don't love the whole idea of the kick i, I don't think it completely works when you think about it yeah, no, you're right. It's definitely the what we have to give the movie. Like, this is the caveat where it's like, like we are watching people go within dreams, within dreams, within dreams. Like, okay, yeah, I, I'm not. I don't want to. I don't want to be that guy that questions everything. But no, you're right. We have to give the movie this narrative convenience, or it's and it's not even convenient. Like, it's this elaborate thing that they have to do, and and I think, like I said, it it leads for some really amazing visuals and dramatic stuff. Like when the Hans Zimmer score is blaring and you know the the van is is inching closer and closer to the water and this the horns are blaring and joseph gordon levitt is like getting is he's like hunkering down in the elevator and um and and every and like the avalanche is coming you're like oh and like the guys are coming back in you're like just hurry the hell up hurry the hell up like it's building tension and it's great and i think again the time manipulation is just it's it's masterful and but going back to this planning you know we get you know, more of the, the intricacies of, you know, how they're going to attack Fisher, uh, how they're going to get the inside, the insider. We're watching Ellen Page build more intricate designs and, and paradoxes. And then we get that little segment of where we kind of find out more about Maul and why Leo can't be an architect because he's afraid that his manifestation, manifestation of Maul is going to ruin the dream. And, and, and I think it's interesting that this, what, what we're seeing of Maul is the is this guilty manifestation of Leo's subconscious affecting his life. I think that's like really interesting, and in that this isn't who Maul was. It's just what it's it's just the literal manifestation of guilt, and I think that's such a really interesting concept. Well, well I think we need to say what it is. He drove his wife crazy. Like that, I mean, for of all the things you want to say about the Dom character, the thing he's most guilty of is he drove his wife beyond the brink of sanity and she couldn't come back. Like, yeah. and, and, and I mean, he is, he is responsible for her death. 
you know, in some way or another. Now he's not legally responsible for it, but he's morally responsible for it. Like he completely is because he introduced this to her. It's like he got her hooked on a drug she could not kick. And then he could not give her what she needed to be able to kick it. And all I, I, I will, I'll, I'll never let that go with this is that we need to make sure that he's held the task for that. Oh yeah. Because, no, I, I'm definitely yeah. going to bring that up a little bit later. Like once we get to like the, the limbo sequence, because that is definitely something that I want to bring up. Uh, we are teasing now is yeah. that, yeah, he is responsible for like inception is that he knows it works because he drove his wife insane and not in like a comical like oh my god i can't fucking stand you he's like no like literally he's the reason she commits suicide why she thinks she's still dreaming and i do want to revisit that in a, in a moment mm-hmm. so we get into the dreams uh, i do really like the the kind of the joke where okay like it's a go you know fisher's father's dead he's coming back the the burial in la uh okay we have to get onto the plane uh, his plane is his plane is uh, is broken. Repairs. He's gonna get onto our plane. Oh, we have to we have to buy the 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 plane. We have to buy out the airline. And the, yeah, I love how Santa's and, like. I just figured I'd buy the whole airline. I bought it the seemed, airline. Seemed like a good deal. <laughs> and that's such a Nolan humor. It reminds me of Batman, where it's like you know this is what billionaires do in his world. They buy they buy twenty thousand copies of the Bat Mask because it's less suspicious. You know they buy the airlines. They buy the restaurants. They they fund NASA. Like that's what billionaires do in, in Nolan's universe is they just do like wild crap like this because, Oh, it it just seemed like the appropriate thing to do. So I really did like that moment. Then we get into the dream also like the idea. So we go into Yusef's dream, the creator of the sedative. And it's, it makes sense that he's there because he knows how the sedative works and when to do specific things. But then we get in here and it's raining because he has to piss because he drank too much champagne. And I think that's just such a great detail that maybe only Nolan would think of, you know, it's on his mind going into the dream. So therefore it's raining. And now they have to adapt this, this, these plans. It, the plan goes to shit right away. Within five minutes, the plan is, is, a, is a bust, but they have to con- consistently adapt to the plan. And, you know, another really interesting visual effect, practical effect, is the the train that blocks, that just comes slamming through the path. Because the whole concept of this dream that I've been calling the snatch and grab is to kidnap Fisher and try and force some sort of, uh, some sort of code out of him that is going to be repeating number, number sequence, whether it's consciously or subconsciously throughout the, the, the rest of these dreams. And... But yeah, this train comes barreling through, and that was a practical effect. They just put this train body on a truck, and they just drove it through this, I guess, sound stage, just destroying cars. And again, it's another train motif, and we get it a little bit earlier with Maul and, and Leo or Cobb, like, you're waiting for a train, and like, where, where it's going, you don't know, it's a blah, 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 but, you know, but tell me where it's going, why does it not matter, because we'll be together. And I think that's really interesting. But again, the train, the train seems almost random to me, like well, why it's here. I, I'll, t- I'll think what it is though. It's if you just think about it again, his wife killed herself because she was convinced she was still stuck in a dream with him. Right. She never got off the train. I mean, it's mm. that, 
ham-fisted of an idea, but that's really it. She never got off the train and she is convinced he needs to accept that she is still on that train waiting for him. That's why she drives a train through his you know, subconscious and things mm. like that. And it's, it's why he can't be trusted to do some things. There's also something else that I think is fun here that, that Nolan is borrowing from. He is outright stealing this from Ocean's 8, Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's uh, 11, mm. I should say, with the idea of Danny Ocean gets himself sidelined because his girlfriend or ex-wife is involved with Julia Roberts, right? And that's when Brad Pitt and everybody else has to take over, but really he's still in control. Same thing is happening here. Dom is ceding control as an architect, somebody he doesn't know, but he's really still in control of all of it. That is straight up Ocean's Eleven. It's just done, instead of for comedy as a heist, it's done much more seriously. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, now that's a really interesting idea. I never really thought of it like that, it, it, because I guess I was trying to think of a deeper meaning of it and i just couldn't find it but yeah it's literally just she couldn't get off the train and yeah. she's now driving this this literal train through the dream like wrecking havoc and destroying the plan it's also like a little bit of fatal attraction i won't be ignored dan you know <laughs> i mean i mean this is a way to not be ignored is to be the train running through your dreams <laughs> yeah exactly um i also like how fisher's mind is militarized and and prepared for things like this. Uh, I mean, you get this this moment of like, you should have prepared for this. Like we weren't prepared for this uh, this type of like this weaponization of of his subconscious. But you know, stakes are even are raised a little bit more where you know Sato gets shot, and that is both you know we kind of care about this guy. He I thought he was going to be like this cold ruthless bastard, but he kind of is not that throughout the movie, which was interesting. But now this is Leo's ticket home. And if you shoot him, we get this idea of limbo. You know, you could go, it's so far into the recesses of your mind that you may not be able to escape. Might, may not, you don't know. Uh, and, and so, you know, we have to go deeper and we, we get, we go even deeper into dream two, which I think they go, they change their tactic of their audible is Mr. Carter, I think is, is how they, I think is the name that they say and the Mr. Carter idea. And if that's not it, I apologize, but we'll just go with that is that you have to tell the Mark that he's dreaming. And this is dangerous for two reasons, but number one, the subconscious is alerted faster and can mow you down faster. And I thought I caught something that the dream can become really unstable because the Mark is aware and it, it just is, is a lot of stimulus to handle. Um, but I think that this yeah. is the it's best the same, segment. It's, it's the same idea in a heist that if one of the people you're robbing, you now actually use them as part of the robbery, you've now just destabilized your entire plan. But it may be the only way to get through the door you need to get through. So it might be worth it, you know, yeah, to it's like a, have somebody it's along gambit, the way yeah. and then, you you know, you deal with it later on. I mean, I but I like that, again, if you just go with the heist motif a little bit that it's okay it's not what we plan to do but we're going to improvise and i think that's you know again if you, if you want to go with the filmmaker metaphor for this or whatever this is what happens on sets you have a script you have everything laid out and then all of a sudden shit doesn't go right and so we start improvising and we start making stuff up the shark doesn't work so we'll have three barrels instead yeah, even the improv, like improv in this, it's just like, okay, well, we're going to essentially Leo's plan is to try and change the the perception of like the right hand man to try and, and dissuade Fisher even more. But one thing I think this is like the best segment of the entire film, like 
it, it, the set pieces, the practical effects, you know, the, the tipping glasses and the liquid for everyone. It's not even just the close up. It's even the background characters, the, the rain in the window when they get splashed. And the most show stealing visual of the whole film is the zero gravity and specifically the hallway fight. Like, Oh my God, the, the last time I was so mesmerized by a scene like this was Quilk. Quicksilver in uh, it, like his time in a bottle scene from Days of Future Past. Like this is such a mesmerizing sequence when they're the the, the hallway is being tilted up and down. They're jumping from from ceiling to wall, ceiling to floor. Like uh, the papers and the and the cups and all all this shit is just falling with the set. And and you know they're trying to wrestle for the gun. They're ju- they're like doing judo moves in the air. Like it's insane what they're able to do. And apparently Go- Joseph Gordon-Levitt did all the stunts except like one or two of them, which is yeah. incredible. It's very like Matrix, Wire Foo, all of that stuff going on. But it's done in the surrounding that again you realize like oh i'm just in a dream so that's how we get away with all this weird zero gravity stuff like it's such a great way to uh, explain away what would otherwise be like really annoying and like no there's no way that could be real right but now that you know you're in a dream oh yeah that totally could work i get it and it's neat to watch the master dream manipulator fight against what is basically like artificial intelligence like if your antivirus software came to life and had to fight something, this is what it would look like. Or better yet, if you want to, you know, really just go with the body motif, and you're, you're in the medical profession, Mike, if you wanted to watch a Tylenol work on a headache, this is <laughs> what it would look like. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it don't, because the headache's better than the Tylenol. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's such a, and it's such an electric fight, electric moment. And like, we're watching, you know, how he's being affected in, I guess stage one of the dream and how it's, it's, it's translating into his world. It's, it's insane. It's, it's, it's so awesome. And and again, like this is the action that Nolan, like you could just feel the attention that he's like, we have to get this right. Like, and I think I was reading somewhere that most films of this time, they had something along the lines of like 2000, like VFX uh, shots. And this film only had 500, like that weren't practical effects. Like uh, primarily these shots were practical, which is, I that, again, just a testament to who Nolan is as a director. He's going to do it yeah. the right way. Cause he knows that practical effects have a longer shelf life than some of these CGI uh, films, even the CGI shots in this film, like as rare as they are, I don't think they stand up to the, the like this hallway sequence. Mm-mm. No, it's again when you can make something look when you make something out of real, it, it allows you to suspend disbelief easier. It just lasts longer. And again, get, you know, give credit where it's due there too. Wally Fister is really, really at the top of his game at this point. As, oh yeah, as a he won an Oscar for this. Yeah, and and well deservedly so. And I mean, I've I've said before, I thought this was the most interesting film of the year it came out and could make an argument for why it should have won best picture. I I think it was wholly so different. It's not entirely unique because I've just named like a dozen things that I think it's borrowing from, but it was unlike anything else that came out that year. And so many things have borrowed from it. You talk about living in a world where this movie exists and you don't know what you know the world's like. We'll never live in another world where a, a thriller or action trailer doesn't have those damn horns in it. You know, because the, the the soundtrack of this movie has outlived the movie in a lot of ways. It's amazing. 
Yeah, exactly. And so now we'll transition to Dream 3, which I was going to say the beginning of GoldenEye, but I, I was avoiding the James Bond, so I, I then went with Snowpiercer. So we have this, I uh, like the final, of course, Fisher's lockbox, or like his safe, is a heavily guarded fortress in the middle of like the Alps that looks like something straight out of Batman. And I'm, I, I would be surprised if this wasn't, like uh an unused uh miniature and set from batman or or like a james bond or some action movie and and i and you know i i'm going with the action but i'm more invested in what's behind the safe like i'm kind of like let's get through like i because so much so we're getting stimulated not overstimulated but there's so much stimulation from the action that i'm like okay I want to get to the safe. I want to get to the narrative at this point. And like, they doubled down on the action here uh, in, in this like snow piercer, the James Bond uh, level, like video game level design. And, and so like, I have my notes like fast forward, like action, action, action. Like I, I, I'm more interested in, in how Fisher is going to open his own mind. Like we get to that point, like Sato's about to die. He's like throwing grenades down, like last stand style, like call of duty. And Fisher's about to open his mind. Maul comes in and kills Fisher because Leo can't take the shot. And, and we find out he go well, then he does take the shot, but a little too late on there, bucko. But, uh, he, we find out that Fisher goes to limbo and they say, you know what? All right. He's, he's done. We got to blow up the safe, but Ellen Page says, no, we got to go and find him because this is the only way, like he's lost. Like this is, this is a bust. We have to go in and find him. And you know, they go back into limbo. Now, before we get to limbo, do you have anything to add to the, this whole snowy level, like James Bond level action sequence? Yeah, it's Owner Majesty's Secret Service. I mean, yeah. that, that's that's exactly what he's cribbing from. And again, I've said before, I, th- I think it's one of the best James Bond movies they've made in a long time. And I happen to really love Casino Royale and and uh, Skyfall from from the uh, Craig uh, Bond world. But I think I think Nolan did something cooler. And I think it would be neat if he ever got to do a Bond movie. I don't know that he ever will now. I think that the time on that may have gone. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I like it. I like all of it. I like the fact that the movie switches from being so cerebral and asking us to, to make those kind of cerebral you know assumptions and to go on that journey to just being an action movie for a little bit like you just just go with the just go with the action and again the the idea that maul won't let it go that she keeps screwing stuff up um i think what's neat about this is that ariadne is the one that says no we can go get him back we can't quit here we can get him back you know as she's become a believer along the way where she was the outsider and then was the skeptic and now she's a believer and she wants to see it through i think that's kind of neat yeah, I, I, I honestly like that was a big moment for her character that I really did enjoy, and how Leo wasn't the like he wasn't the one pushing. He he was grabbing the C four with Tom Hardy, and like oh we gotta we either gotta get in that safe or we gotta set the charges so we can get the kick. And so they go into limbo, and I think it's interesting how like although it's Fisher's world, you know Leo's subconscious is still filling the void. Like we essentially are in. Uh, Leo's limbo that he had with Maul that the world they created is now crumbling just from disrepair that no one's been creating in the world and you know and we get the oh this is we we always wanted to live in a house but you know we we love this we worked in the city so we made the best of both worlds in this in this world and 
and it's here that I that I want to get back to this idea that we officially find out that Leo implanted this idea, like the first inception. And I want to ask you, why <laughs> did he want to leave and Maul didn't? Because you know we get this idea that she, in her subconscious, she locks away her totem that she that I took that as she doesn't care anymore, and so. I the only way I can think about this is that Leo thought that driving her insane was the only way he was going to get back to the real world. That's the only well, way I can kind of think about this, but I, I'm I'm confused about why he drove her insane. I, I don't think he intended to drive her insane. I think that was the the byproduct of this that he didn't anticipate, which is another reason he's got regrets for doing it. I think he came became convinced that the only way I can pull her out of this is to convince her that it is it is not real. It is not fake. I have to get her away from this and and I have to plant the idea in her head that it is her idea that we get out of this. And it's one of the lessons that we learn about Inception and Tom Hardy lays it out and said, the problem with the alien idea is that it's always alien to the person unless you just really get it in there and it's not so much depth. It has to be the core root of the idea. And what Leo thought he could do or what Don thought he could do with with her was we want to go back home we want to go to our real life and this was her reality that was his mistake what he should have done was we need to see our children they're not here remember our children like if he had gone with that then there's a thought that maybe she would have gone through after they you know they, they lay on the train tracks together to die is what happens and he wakes up she wakes up but she doesn't think she's awake she still thinks she's in another dream level and that's that's the thing is that the inception the idea he planted it wasn't the pure root of it it was what he thought was the root of it and it, it wasn't because you know again you, you want to go like you know just to some basic psychological motifs and stuff and you know it's it's interesting we're recording this on mother's day there's nothing like the connection between a mother and her children you know, it's, it's undeniable. I mean, there's tons of movies made about it. Poltergeist is a movie that's completely built around that idea in, in so many ways. And to have failed at inception is because he thought, no, I want to go away from the fake world and back to our real world. When what he really should have done was say, don't you want to go back to our children? Because clearly that's his motivation. You know, it's not only a mother too, it's a father. And in, in a lot of ways, you have the connection to the children. So I thought that was, that's a neat little piece that he, he screwed it up because he forgot what the real motivation was himself. And I think that's, that's, I don't think he, he meant to drive her insane. The fact that she went insane was just the unfortunate byproduct of having done all that. And now he knows like, that's the danger of this is you might go crazy. from it. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a, a really interesting. I, I like how the narrative builds to this point and you, and then you, you have this realization of like, well, how do you know inception works? Like, because I did it against my, I, I had, I implanted this idea and you know, what happened happened and I know it works. And it, like you said, the unintended consequences of it. And this is where Leo finally lets go of Maul and that, you know, and he also, he, he dies while the kick lines up because he has to go, I guess, even further into limbo, or not, maybe not even further. He has well, he, to go He's got to go to the bottom because Sato's dead. He's got to go get Yeah, Sato. he's got to go even yeah. deeper into another, like into Sato's limbo to try and get him back because, you know, even Ellen Page is, oh, you're not coming. He's like, Sato is my ticket. If I don't go back with him, this is for not for me. So I like how he then, you know, the kicks line up. 
they survive, they get out of the truck. F Inception works on Fisher. Uh, we find out like what his manifestation that he's locked behind the, the door is his father. You know, I'm disappointed. Y'all, and he thinks, and, and, and I, th I like this detail of we don't know if like if the father is actually disappointed in Fisher or if he's having an actual like an actualization or realization that maybe there's something deeper and and we find like in this dream in this self-actualization moment uh maurice fisher tells uh killian murphy like no i'm disappointed that you tried and like i always loved you and you know it's this very touching moment in this dream that i'm sure all of us have had these moments in our own dreams where he's like super emotional moments that are just elevated because of the dream state and then you know the the kicks line up fisher comes out it's like no i'm gonna dissolve the corporation you know i i need to be my own man and you know we we then wake up in well can we talk about that for a sec though that you realize like what it took for this guy to believe that lie we don't know if that's true at all maybe his father was a huge jerk and was disappointed in him yeah that's but we had to get thing. him to believe that my father was disappointed in me because i was trying to be him and i need to be my own person because that's the whole purpose is they need this guy to break the company up that's what sato wants that's the whole MacGuffin of this if you will is we need this guy to break up the company but he's got to come up with that on his own and how do you do that you figure out the guy has major daddy issues and you just work on them level by level by level until you get him to believe that I mean, what was he his some dream or some memory of like going to a park and a pinwheel and a carnival or some nonsense and that's what's in the the secret safe that we've been getting the damn code for and all this stuff is oh yeah it's it's it, my father really did love me he wasn't disappointed in me in reality fisher's father hated him <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know and, which and, is and like whatever, always like know? the thing i remember or i'm like ooh, this like feels very sad like yeah, this, it is sad it's like, like this this guy breaks up his empire he, you know he's probably got enough money to get by on but he's got to go like make something of his own who knows if he can maybe he sucks and isn't any good at anything else and now he you know in 10 years he's gonna be like begging sato for a job in, in the mail room for all we know well and that's that's what i want to talk about with sato in this next moment so we get to the beginning the end like the beginning of the film which is the end of this story when Leo washes onto the shores of Sato's reality, Limbo, and we see, as Leo did in his own Limbo, that Sato has grown old, and he's almost forgot about what, where he came from. He's just so engrossed in the world, but they're having this back, this back and forth, you know, like, we'll be remembered as old, or as young men, and we'll laugh, or whatever, we'll drink, whatever the hell they said, and it, and it hard cuts, which Sato's picking up the gun, and, and Leo's like, you know, come back with me. And, you know, led to the assumption that Sato killed both of them. And they wake up on the plane. Uh, you know, Ellen Page and Joe Scorn Levitt are smiling. Like, oh, it worked. And then Sato wakes up. And you would, I had this note. You would think that after, because throughout the dream, he's even like, I'm going to make good on my promise. Like, let's get back so I can fulfill this promise. Like, it almost seems like regardless of how this the dream if it failed or succeeded sato was going to call he was gonna he said i'm gonna honor my promise and it wasn't so much as a Cobb, do your end of the deal or and remember what I, what my end is he he adamantly was saying i'm gonna fulfill the end of my deal once like once we get out of this and so he wakes up immediately calls but wouldn't you think that like he would rethink his entire life he's had 
like let's just say 50 60 for anywhere from 40 to 60 years in this limbo streamscape where he could reflect on his life and it seemed like he had changed drastically in the in the heist portion of itself like i almost would expect that you know i think it'd be interesting if both companies got dissolved by the end you know an well, unintentional inception i think it's neat that you that you think that because see i think sato got exactly what he wanted i think he spent all those years in limbo waiting or wondering did these guys abandon me because he's surrounded by the same thing he was in the uh, one of the original dreams he's surrounded in a dojo or whatever by security that he's created for himself waiting for something he, but he's so deep again he doesn't know how he got there he doesn't know what he's doing he's just waiting and waiting and waiting and he's just waited so long but it takes absolutely nothing for him to be jogged back into it. It takes Leo saying half of that phrase, you know, about, oh, oh, take a leap of faith with me. Oh, I know what that means. I've been waiting to hear that for 50 damn years. Boom, boom, and we're awake. I mean, I, I think that's what's neat is that he never lost faith. I think he got exactly what he wanted and he followed through with exactly what he, what he said he was going to do. And I think what's neat is that he waves his hand and does it. This is the cool thing about the last, like, you know, 10 minutes here of this movie, there's very little dialogue until Leo gets back home, right? It's all in the airport. It's music. It's everybody looking at each other like, that was a freaky ride. You know, <laughs> what was in that water, right? And then they all go to sleep. You know, it's it's a different uh, look at each other at the end. I, I think that that's what's neat about this is we don't have any dialogue to explain what's happening. We just know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And then that gets into our, our you know, we land – he passes through customs it's a welcome home Cobb or whatever a dom Cobb or whatever whatever he says and you know we michael kane picks him up at the airport we get back to his house like nothing is seemingly changed like the kids does, don't seem like they've aged a whole lot or maybe they have and i just didn't notice it but that's not the point we finally see their faces he spins the top and he goes and uh you know says hello to his kids picks them up and this is where the infamous end comes in. You know, he spins the top, walks away, and the camera looms over. It's just about the fall, and and then black. And, and Jay, what happens? What do you think happens at the end of this movie? I think it falls over because I think he's back in reality. I believe this movie, for what it is telling me, is going to happen. You know, and again, he his totem is not the top. That's Mal. And what that is him doing is saying when he walks away from it is I don't care if it falls or not. I don't need that anymore. And he, because the kids turn around. So he knows he's home. And I mean, Nolan has said forever, you can take it either way, but he's back home and he doesn't care if it falls or not, because that's not his totem anyway. And he's walking away from that. He's finally forgiving himself for what he did to his wife. And that's the thing is that there's a great scene. It's probably Marion Cotter's best scene in the movie is when they're in one of the limbo stages and she's at, she's at the table begging him to stay with her, you know, and she's like, and he, you know, goes to that whole, you know, everything I could dream about you. is just a, a small reflection of what you really were. And this isn't you. And this, I've, I've gotten hung up on the awful thing you did at the end and created this monster out of you when you weren't that at all. And I'm letting that go. And that's when he shoots her in the head. You know, too. He's like, I'm letting go of the guilt version of you I created because I feel guilty for what I did to you. But you know what? I want to live and our children need me to live. And you are not this demon 
that I created. I am letting go of it. I think it's Dom letting go of the guilt of his wife's death and moving on with his life. So I think the top ball's over. That's my honest opinion. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I, I, I just want to say this ending is brilliant. Like this is the only way you could, I feel like you should appropriately end this movie. And it's, it's got both that superficial, like, dude, whoa, and that philosophical meetings that we were talking about earlier. And never did I ever think that he was dreaming in this segment. I, I had never had that debate. I mean, I listened to people that thought that, but I never had that debate with myself if he was dreaming. I always thought that he was real or that he was in reality. I, I one, I don't really like movies that end like that. So I don't really want to live in or like exist in that reality where I think that this this is all just a big dream. Like that that I think is not fun and just narratively weak. But yeah, it's exactly what you were saying. It's it's not like the t- like you said the top is not his totem. It's it's not about whether or not the top falls over. I think people are debating the wrong thing. I think the debate is, you know, he's letting go of Maul. He's letting go of his guilt. He's following through with what he said in limbo. Like, it's time for me to let you go. He's moving on with his grief. And that's what this ending's about is he, he turns his back on it and he's able to be with his, his family and accept, you know, accept what he's done, but also move on. And And I think it's brilliant. And I will admit part of that is the counselor in me that this is this guy coming to terms with his grief and dealing with it in the only way he knows how. And that is to literally shoot it in the head and then walk away from it on the table. The thing that would get him going, there's a a Mark Pellington movie, The Mothman Prophecies. I don't know if you've seen that or not, Uh, but you know, it's old enough that I can spoil it here or whatever. (laughs) He thinks his passed away wife is going to call him on the phone on Christmas Eve. And Laura Linney is telling him, I don't know who's on that phone, but it's not your wife. She's dead. And you don't need to be alone on Christmas Eve. So come back to West Virginia and hang out with me and my family and let it go. And you have to watch Richard Aguirre, let it go. You know, it's the same thing happening here is he is letting go of the need to hold on to that grief because there's a real power in that too, Mike. I mean, you can build an entire life around a mistake you've made and just chasing your own ass for it the rest of your life. If you want to, you know, and you can build a good life out of doing it, but it's exhausting. And at some point he finally got to the point, Don, where it was so exhausting and he had put all these people through all of these paces. Look at all of what he had to do to get back. You know, again, believing the movie's conceit that this could actually ever happen, right? Mm-hmm. Look at what he had to do. And when he's back, what does he do? The way he reacts to those kids and scoops them up and just rushes, it's like he's totally worth it. And that's when you realize like, okay, therapy complete. Good job. You know, and and he, you know, goes forward with it. And that's the kind of look Michael Caine has on his face too. It's like, finally, we can all move on. And I think that's what this movie's about is learning how to deal with your mistakes and move on. I mean, again, the central core of this movie, much like the central core of Interstellar, is not all that complicated. It's dealing with mistakes, learning from them, and learning how to forgive yourself. And that's what this movie's about in, in every possible way. And that's why I think it lasts and it, and it works. Um, now, on the other hand, man, I can sit here and give you 30 minutes on why I think the top is still spinning and he's still in limbo, but he doesn't care anymore or whatever. But honest truth, I think he's back in, in reality. and he, He's done. He's ready to walk away. He's ready to move on. Yeah. And it's like, 
it, it's it's very it kind of reminds me of the ending of you know total recall in that you know fades the white and do i want to accept that like am i going to take this at face value and just be like yo no it's it's you know it's this happy ending or could i go down the route of he's actually being lobotomized i mean there's there's an argument for both sides but i'm i am always going to go down the route of it's not it's it's reality this is not that it's face value but i am more inclined to believe like the stronger narrative theme is is put forth if this is a reality versus the top is still spinning or you know fade to white fade to black you know i i think yeah. that this is stronger the narrative theme and the movie is stronger if it is in he's in reality yeah you don't need this movie to lie to you is the thing mm -hmm. like, there's no reason for it to do so you know it it is it has told you if you will accept what i am telling you this reality this world does i will not lie to you about what happens in it and i think that's what nolan asks you to do in this movie it's the same thing with memento you know, and, and even something like The Prestige, you know, that movie is all built to try to trick you. But if you'll just believe what he has set up for you, that movie does not lie to you. You know, it does not cheat. It tells you what it is. Same thing with Dark Knight Rises. I know people love to hate on the end of that, you know, where Batman, how's he get away from the bomb and all that stuff? Because he's friggin' Batman. You know, like that, that's what the movie tells you is like, there's nothing this guy doesn't get out of. So don't act surprised when he gets away from a nuclear bomb. Yeah. You know, it's because, like you're missing the point of yeah, what. Exactly. It's like you're missing the whole thing. Like. Yeah. He, he doesn't need to be Batman anymore. That's the point, you know, but yeah, but it's again, it's the same thing. It's like, well, is the top real? Is it not? You know, does, is that okay that he, that he comes back to reality? Yeah. Because if you were going to accept that people could do this kind of a thing in a reality, then you have to accept the answer that it presents you at the end. Otherwise you're just arguing the movie because you just want to argue about it. I mean, that's the honest truth. But th this movie is not trying to trick you. It is trying to tell you, I told you this is what would happen if we were able to get this guy to convince to break up his company. We broke up his company. Boom. The guy that bought an airline made all my crap go away. Do you think powerful rich people can't make stuff go away? I would like to introduce you to a lot of people. <laughs> so, I mean, so there, there are people would like a word. I mean, that's, that's reality, or at least it's the reality we all will accept. And it's also the truth. I mean, that's just how it is. So it's, I, I don't know. I, I like the fact that this movie parades like it is incredibly complicated, but in reality, it's not. If you'll just accept it for what it's trying to tell you, which is that if you'll believe me, I will not lie to you about the end of it. And it doesn't lie. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's, we're going to start wrapping up with our thoughts and I, I'll go first with the closing thoughts and like final recommendations. Yeah. I, I want to echo a lot of what you said. Like, I think the ending is absolutely brilliant. Like this is, it's all about this theme of, of, of letting go, forgiving yourself, like letting go of your, and dealing with your grief in, in an appropriate way. And, and, and I, and I think that this is what, like the, in essence, this film is really what I enjoy about Nolan as well. And, and like what I don't enjoy. I'm like, it, it's, it's both ways. You know, I really do love the subtext of his films while some of the pandering stuff I, I could do without, but I, I really do enjoy, like he knows how to make a damn good movie and to do it right. You know, in an age in digital, in, in this age of digital filmmaking and, and like it's CGI fest, like it's easy just to be like, okay, we're just going to shoot everything on a green screen and, you know, make it look good for what we got right now. And, you know, eh. 
let's just shoot let's just shoot the top falling like yeah who who fucking cares it's no big deal but no nolan says no we are well, and especially this film he's been working on it for he wrote it for over eight years but you know that passion that he brings to cinema and and inception and his stories and his narratives and his and his camera work and his direction like just the passion for filmmaking i i really do enjoy him and i really do enjoy this film so i'm going to give uh, inception a seven out of ten uh if we were on a film strip i would give it a a very solid medium popcorn I think that there are better Nolan films, but I think this is damn good. I think this is like in his his top tier of of his canon of films, and and it's funny like we were saying earlier. You know, I Insomnia to me is one of his weaker films, but it's by no means a bad film. It's a very competent film. It's kind of like Tarantino. It's just it's like picking the films that it's it's like it's like how do you pick what's his worst film i mean i would debate that there is a worst film but you know with that one aside like his repertoire of films how do you pick which one is bad and like how do you how do you justify one over the other and i think that nolan it's very similar like all his films are very very good and how like how do you justify where you place them but i i think this is a one of his top tiered films and it definitely you know the impact it's had on cinema at the time and now and in the future is going to be long lasting and i i can't wait to see tenant and i can't wait to just see him and how he matures and or not maybe not matures but how he just grows as a filmmaker as time goes on i, I gotta tell you man I, you know when we start talking about somebody's best film or whatever i mean it's hard to say for a guy that's still making movies you know, because maybe it's coming up. I don't know. But if you're asking me what my favorite one of his is, it's this one, and it's not even close. I, I can watch this movie and see something new and find it out, even as simple as, again, I think it is as its core. I think it's fun to get lost in the details of it. It's fun to have two-hour conversations with somebody about it and, and just, you know, really geek out about it. It's a movie that's built for that, and it's built to also just be a lot of fun. Like, if you just want to watch it and pop some popcorn and just watch a movie, you, it's a perfect movie to just sit and watch, too, in my mind. I don't think it asks too much of you. Um, but like, a movie like 2001 asks a lot of you. I can't just watch that movie and just sort of let it wash over me, right? Like it's, it's an experience and sort of an intellectual discussion to watch that movie. And so and interstellar in a lot of ways is the same way too, unless you're just really watching for that dynamic between uh, Matthew McConaughey and, and the um, Murph characters. But this movie can play both things. It can play the Spielberg and it can play the Kubrick. And that's a hard thing to do. And I don't know that he could ever do that again, um, maybe, maybe in my mind, he won't ever, and I'm not asking him to either. I think the guy just makes good films and has fun stuff. And I like to watch his stuff, you know, and I'm going to keep watching it either way. Uh, if we were on film strip, dude, this would be an extra large popcorn for me, man. This is way better than seven out of 10. This is like 9.4, you know, or something. This is real good. I mean, again, there's, there's, there's not perfection here. Don't get me wrong. There's stuff that if you want to pull at the threads, there's plenty to pull at and you can pull apart a couple that don't really work. But if you'll look at it for, Again, what the movie is asking you to be a part of this world, what our world is. And if you'll just accept that world, I will not lie to you. This is what this movie promises. And it delivers, just like Sado. If you do what I ask you to, I promise you I can do what you want. 
And this movie does the same thing. I think if you approach it with that, you'll get it. And part of that I'm going to totally admit is biased because I got introduced to it by a friend that I would have otherwise have never heard of it. And then got to spend like some real time with it, trying to chew it apart. And again, it spent 10 years sort of living with this movie and, and thinking about it. And so it's definitely one though, that I know I'll go back and watch again, you know, in a couple of years, it's definitely on my, it, it really, honestly, I, I used to watch this like every year up until about four years ago and then I just stopped. And so I rewatched watched it again for this you know review and it had been three or four years but i i'm definitely putting this one back in the rotation of at least once a year maybe every two years got to rewatch this and and see if i can have as much fun with it continually as i have for all these years but i have no reason to think i won't because again i've never swayed from how much i like this movie and how smart i think it is but how also smart it treats the audience i mean it's one thing for a movie to be smart and kind of beat the audience over its head with how dumb they all are you know this movie again treats you like you're smart enough to follow this you know it treats us it treats us the audience very much like dom treats ariadne you're smart enough to do this and even calls you out no do it better you can you can think through this do it better and it makes it work and i think that's cool i think that's what's the neat part of all of this and so yeah i love this movie uh definitely recommend to watch i'm very much though i think you need to watch this with people you can have a conversation with about it i don't know that this is fun to watch by yourself uh <laughs> necessarily I, I would definitely recommend this like if you've got a friend group that you watch bad movies with or if right now you know you're still doing stay at home and all that kind of stuff organize a watch party for this like this would be a fun one i think to get into if you've got some film geek friends that really just want to you know nerd out on something like that or if you just get people like good movies and i want to talk about it i think it's cool um i would tell people watch on your Majesty's secret service watch heat watch oceans 11 and then watch this sometime in like a week together or something you'll see so many things about this movie <laughs> that maybe you didn't know before i think it's fun to to do that and and again i only did it because i've spent a lot of time watching movies in my life and just again the way my brain works kind of like your notes i just connect dots to stuff and this one i can see all the things that are influencing it and I don't ding it for it. And I see all the things that it's influenced. And the only thing I ding it for is those damn horns in every trailer. Ever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's James Horner's problem. And, and not, uh, not, or was Hans Zimmer. I can't, which one was it? But yeah, it's not Hans Zimmer. No, I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. It's, that's Hans Zimmer's fault and not, not, uh, not Christopher Nolan's fault. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I love this and uh, really appreciate the chance to come on and chat with it, with you, man. It's been a real blast to come back on Amateur Tours and, and talk about a, a movie that uh, I love so dearly. Yeah, no, very well said, Jay. And yeah, no, thanks again for coming on. Like, this was a lot of fun. And it was something that I personally needed to de-stress from, you know, work, quarantine life. You know, I've been trying to, you know, find purpose and 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 things to do and you know i think the marvel movies are helping out and i definitely think this helped me out too so with that jay uh why don't you uh tell everyone where we can find you on social media and what what do you have uh what's your show and and what do you have uh coming up on your dockets all right well you can follow filmstrip podcast at filmstrippodcast.com you'll go straight to the anchor.fm site where we release the show it's on 12 platforms so you can do that or just search for us on your favorite podcatcher we're there um you can follow the show's social media at filmstrip pod on twitter and instagram now and filmstrip podcast on uh, facebook and if you want to follow my personal twitter it's at jay skipworth it's just my name on twitter i tweet about sports mostly college football and some nfl and movies and podcasts that's really what i tweet about so um you know i'm a i'm a safe timeline follow i like to say um because i don't tweet about stuff that people get icky about uh 
um, on the internet because I get icky about that too. Um, so, cause that's not what I come to the internet for. So um, yeah, that's how you can follow me on film strip. Um, you know, right now we're in the month of May. We are doing, man, we, we've been doing a lot of cool stuff. Uh, we used to be uh, when we restarted the show, like every other week was kind of our thing uh, because it just worked out well. But now that we've all been sort of locked at home for a while, uh, we've all found enormous amounts of time to record stuff. Uh, so we have got really cool stuff coming up. Um, we've got the big Lebowski. We've got a movie called rounders, which is a Matt Damon flick from the 90s um in june we've got i know what you did last summer coming up which is uh, one of our funnier reviews ever recorded we've got the fugitive i just recorded arlington road with mike from uh, the dana buckler show that was going to be coming out in june um and lots of other cool stuff coming up uh, we also did casino royale which will be coming out at some point this summer as well and uh, as promised i mean that, that Kubrick retrospective all the stanley Kubrick films kurt and i have been reviewing those through the years we we're finally up to eyes wide shut and the end so we're going to do that one this summer and then we're going to do a session show which is the show you've been on before too mike where it's our general topic show it's going to be totally dedicated to kubrick and us doing like a kubrick ranking because he and i decided we didn't want to just tack that on the end of the eyes wide shut uh, review uh, we wanted to do a whole show on those going back through all the kubrick films we've talked about so we've got all that coming up this summer lots of fun stuff and then um, we've got some cool stuff planned for the fall as well we like to record well in advance and you know right now is a good time to do that so won't tease any more than that but a lot of cool stuff really appreciate folks support check out the show if you like it leave us a positive review and hey we appreciate it and thanks for letting me plug it and uh, again thanks for letting me come on here and talk uh, movies with you again on amateur tours oh of course jay it's always a blast and with that guys it concludes this episode of amateur tours as always you can follow us on twitter at our tours pod email us with any questions comments or concerns at the amateur tours podcast at gmail.com and as always we'll see you next time